This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to BIEB 152. Uh, this is Evolution of Infectious Disease. This is lecture number seven. Uh, last lecture, we learned about the rise of antibiotic resistance and how that is a a uh, major crisis that's coming in the future. Um, it might be at the scale of the pandemic that we're experiencing right now. Uh, and so we need to develop strategies in order to combat the rise of antibiotic resistance. This is occurring much, much slower than the pandemic, um, giving us time to really think through the ways that we can uh, combat the rise of antibiotic resistance. So I'm gonna go over uh, six different strategies today but those strategies um, are not, it's, it's a semi-exhaustive list of different kinds of strategies and different approaches, but lots of people are coming up with other ways as well. And as always, um, let's get into checking the temperature uh, of COVID-19. And um, there's kind of two things that I want to talk about today. One is that we have certainly, and I've, I've said this before, but I guess I need more confirmation and more data to really believe it. We have certainly flattened the curve as a country and we have flattened the curve as Californians. This is uh, data that was posted on the New York Times yesterday. And what these two graphs are showing in the top graph is, and this is for the United States, the whole country um, integrated across the whole country. Uh, in, the, in the top graph, we're seeing that you know, over a week ago, we began to flatten the curve of uh, the rate of new cases. So we're stabilizing at about 30,000 new cases of COVID-19 per day. In the first graph, we've seen that over a week ago, um, we began to flatten the curve and that's been, been maintained and that we have about 30,000 new cases per day in the United States. Um, and so this is all good news. I, would have, I do have to note that it's not, we have flattened the curve, but we're not really uh, decreasing the number of new cases per day. So the, the prevalence of the disease is being maintained at a, at a fairly steady state, it seems, in the United States, which means that more and more people are getting infected. Certainly other people are recovering from the infection, and that gives you kind of a steady state dynamic. Um, so this is ideally the, the measures that we would take would actually uh, cause the decline in the increase of cases through time. Um, and so hopefully it, it does do that. Uh, as is, if we will have to just maintain this level of, um, of social distancing, if this, is, if, this is, if this trend maintains, if we don't actually reverse the pattern, but we actually just sort of stabilize and plateau, then we'll just have to keep doing what we're doing uh, until we get uh, some kind of therapeutic. So next lecture will be about therapeutics and we'll talk a little bit more about them there. And so there is hope uh, for therapeutics. Uh, I've also put uh, the, another curve here and this is the number of deaths per day um, caused by COVID-19. And what we see there is that that pattern has plateaued as well. The number of deaths usually is uh, lags behind the number of new cases just because it takes a while for cases to become so bad that they end up causing uh, fatalities. 
And so um, this is good news. It's nice to see that that curve is flattening as well. It's sort of, it, the bottom graph is actually thought to be better data uh, because they, we take better um, records of whether or not people died from COVID-19, uh, whereas the top graph is based on, you know, people going into the hospitals or going into their doctors and having access to uh, COVID-19 tests and those tests being successful. And so that is a little bit more happenstance uh, with who actually gets tested. And so that data is not as reliable as the bottom data, but now that we see that the bottom data is also plateauing, uh, we can be co more confident that this is real, that our, our social distancing is working, um, and that we should continue it until we see that really begin to decline uh, the number of new cases per day. So next time, like I said, we'll talk about um, different drugs that are being developed for COVID-19. Uh, and then we'll also talk about how resistance might evolve to these different drugs. So kind of taking what we've learned from uh, past studies and from the, the lecture today, the material in the lecture today, to anticipate whether or not COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 uh, will remain sensitive to these therapies um, and whether or not uh, we have to think through how to avoid resistance uh, evolving in, the, in the, the, the coronavirus strain. So I'm talking about this today because it was leaked last week that this remdesivir uh, might be a promising drug uh, for COVID-19. So this is a drug, we'll go into its mechanism of action next time, uh, but it was a drug that was first developed for hepatitis C, but it turned out not to work that well in, uh, for patients that have hepatitis C. And then uh, it was used to treat people uh, that had Ebola and uh, it had some therapeutic effects. Uh, and now it's being evaluated uh, for its effects on COVID-19. Uh, the study was leaked last week. It was, it was not supposed to be released yet. Uh, but we found out that in, at the University of Chicago, there are 113 critical patients that were treated with this drug. And uh, most of them had actually been released from the hospital already. And two of them did die, but these were really severe cases. And so the death rate of very severe cases is typically much, much higher than uh, just two out of 113. So this sounds promising, uh, but I have to give the caveat that this is not a controlled study. They just had a population of patients that they gave this um, drug to, and they just sort of crossed their fingers and hoped that it would help them. Um, but ideally, uh, a trial would be done where you have a set of control patients that are very similar to the population that you're giving the drug to, uh, and you can, you can compare the, the length of time that they st stayed in the hospital, the rate of mortality, and things like that between these two different groups. And then that's really the definitive evidence that you know, this drug is having a, an effect. Uh, but this is really promising, and they have a much larger uh, study uh, underway in many more cities than just the University of Chicago. And so hopefully we get positive results from that soon, and the FDA uh, clears it very rapidly uh, for use. Um, so fingers crossed, hopefully, hopefully this all works out.
I should say that this is actually, it was leaked and that makes it feel like a tabloid, um, but actually this is a very uh, reputable um, uh, online magazine uh, stat. So we can, we can sort of trust this. Okay, let's actually get into lecture uh, today. So combating antibiotic resistance, this is our next major crisis that we're gonna have to deal with. Oh, I mean, fingers crossed that there's nothing else before <laughs> between this pandemic and, and combating antibiotic resistance. But um, I don't know, let's not make predictions nowadays. So, okay, strategies uh, to combat antibiotic resistance. So I'm gonna go over six different strategies. Um, they, the way that I'm going to build up the strategies and the way that they're organized is I'm gonna start out with the simplest strategy and build up in complexity. Um, and you, you also see that the simplest strategy um, is, is important to implement because it'll help stop the spread of antibiotic resistance. Uh, but really the last strategy is the only strategy where we can reverse antibiotic resistance. Um, and so they're all important to do together in all different ways that we can combat this. Um, but we are gonna have to employ pretty sophisticated uh, strategies. You've seen this graph, I think, twice now. So this is the third time. This is just showing you that this class of enzymes called beta-lactamases um, is increasing through the years since we've been using antibiotics in a widespread manner around the world. And uh, beta-lactamase, just to remind you, is a enzyme that the bacteria has that helps it um, resist antibiotics. So the enzyme interferes with the antibiotics, and so the bacteria then has antibiotic resistance. The reason why this is increasing through time uh, and why the increase is exponential is because there, there's just such huge selective benefit for this, uh, for a bacteria to have beta-lactamase. So think of, you know, think of two sets of bacteria. One set of bacteria is the evolved bacteria that has the beta-lactamase. One set of bacteria is the ancestral bacteria that doesn't have the beta-lactamase. Um, and so now they have different evolutionary or different Darwinian fitnesses, just like we talked about in our natural selection lecture. And the one that has, the evolved one that has the beta-lactamase is now increasing in frequency through time. And that is translating on this graph as an increase in the number of beta-lactamase enzymes that we've been able to detect in microbial populations. But you know that exponential growth curve should look really familiar. It's just like that R that we talked about um, in, in the selection or, or natural selection lecture. So strategy number one is very simple. It's very straightforward. And it's something that we absolutely have to do. It's not gonna solve the problem, but it's going to make the problem a lot less bad. So we should reduce the amount of antibiotics that we use. We shouldn't use them as much in uh, livestock production. We shouldn't use them in uh, soaps. We should, soap is antibacterial itself. Uh, we don't need to add compounds to it. We need to basically preserve um, the usefulness of antibiotics and the best way to, to slow down them becoming not useful is by just stopping using them as often. And you know, if you have a viral infection, don't request antibiotics, don't take antibiotics, 
only take antibiotics if um, a doctor has prescribed them for you uh, and you, you know it's a, a bacterial infection that is, that is causing your illness. And so what I'm showing here is I just fit an exponential curve um, to the, the previous data um, and then I uh, estimated the, um, the R for that exponential curve and then I just reduced that R by 25%. And so that would correspond to a reduce in the fitness benefit of these genes by just 25%. So that would be translate to us just reducing our usage of antibiotics by 25%. But you can see over the years, because of the way exponential work, growth, exponential increase works, you can see that there's a major difference that accumulates. So the trend is still bad in the 25% reduction uh, scenario where you know we're still increasing the the number of antibiotic resistance genes that are that are present, um, but you can see that that increase is, is much much lower, much much slower, um, and you know it, we're not going to hit a sort of crisis moment for a very long time. So this is essentially the same concept of flattening the curve for COVID nineteen. We can flatten the curve with antibiotic resistance by not using them as often. And so really think through that. Um, you know, if you, if you are at the store and there's two types of hand soap, one with antibiotics and one without, use the one without, honestly, use that one. It, it, you do not need antibiotics in that product. So the question is, um, strategy number one, it will certainly slow the spread as I just showed, but could it actually even reverse the problem? And so this is a hypothesis that people had for a very long time, that perhaps if we just stopped using antibiotics as often, uh, the antibiotic resistance genes would go away. And the idea there is that antibiotic resistance genes are often costly. It costs the cell to produce the enzymes like beta-lactamase. It costs cells to produce um, uh, things like efflux pumps that pump out antibiotics that we talked about. Those are very costly. It costs ATP to actually pump out the antibiotics into the environment, so to move them from the cell outside. And, um, and there's other ways that these antibiotic resistance mutations are costly. So if you um, mutate an enzyme that's already well adapted to perform a function in the cell, well, then that enzyme has a, has a chance of uh, not working as well. And so that will uh, cost the cell and that it won't be able to grow as fast if its enzymes aren't working properly. And so this, this cost, it's uh, some jargon, is that this is pleiotropy. Um, the way that you can think about pleiotropy is this is a side effect where, you know, there is a mutation for antibiotic resistance, but it has a side effect that it costs the cell and makes the cell grow slower. And so that's a fitness disadvantage. But that disadvantage is overwhelmed if that cell is in an environment that has lots and lots of antibiotics. So always think of pleiotropy as you know, one mutation with two effects. The, the effect that's being selected for and that is adaptive, that's antibiotic resistance, and the effect that is a sort of side effect that this cost of, um, of having that adaptation. And so the idea is that if we remove the selective advantage to having these antibiotic resistance genes, then those genes will be selected against because that cell will be paying a cost for no reason and it'll drop out of the population.
And so when we actually do a literature search for whether or not there are these costs, this pleiotropy for antibiotic resistance, we find again and again that when cells, when bacteria evolve antibiotic resistance, that um, we do see that, that that resistance is costly. And so this is just a massive table of lots of different citations. Um, you don't have to memorize this table. It's just to show you that you know, there's a bunch of different bacterial species that were studied. Um, and actually, this is a fungal species, but I'm not sure. But whatever. Um, so, so these are all, all uh, pathogens. They can evolve resistance to these antibiotics. Um, and here are the costs, whether or not they have a cost. Um, sometimes the cost is variable. Uh, so maybe it happens with some mutations are costly and other mutations are not costly. Um, but the point is, is that all of these different categories uh, yield costs, except for there, there are two instances where there's no cost. So just backing off antibiotic use of those, these antibiotics for um, these strains of bacteria, yeah, that, that wouldn't have any effect at all. Um, but the rest of them, you would predict that, well, if it's costly, if you stopped using the antibiotics, then they, the cost would cause the bacteria to lose that gene and lose the function of that gene. However, that table is not taking into account that once antibiotic resistance evolves, then, and, and the cell is paying this high cost to be resistant, then there's a lot of selective pressure for that cell to then evolve mutations that mitigate that cost. These mutations are called compensatory mutations. So in you know, getting, a, getting a resistant gene or getting a resistant mutation, you've, you've changed the cell in a way and, and now it's paying a cost, but you know, there's lots of ways that cells can mutate and change uh, and accommodate those costs, actually mitigate those costs uh, to deal with this sort of side effect, this pleiotropy. And so those mutations that deal with that are called compensatory mutations. Um, and the effect of compensatory mutations is basically if they get rid of that cost, then, and you remove antibiotics from the environment, then the cell is just going to maintain that resistance gene. There's not going to be a benefit to having that resistance gene, but there's not going to be a cost either. And so that gene will maybe fluctuate uh, neutrally in the population, but it's going to maintain in the population for a very, very long time. Microbial populations tend to be very large. So let's, let's sort of think about what compensatory mutations are a little bit more specifically using this bar graph format that we used in previous lectures um, to talk about epistasis. So compensatory mutations are another example of epistasis. And so I just want to remind you that epistasis, these are genetic interactions. It's, um, it's that the effect of a particular mutation is dependent on other mutations or it's dependent on the genome that it occurs in. So in the case of compensatory mutations, it's only beneficial if it's in a genome that has that first resistance mutation. So let's just walk through what this looks like um, quantitatively. So say we have fitness on the y-axis and we have a bunch of different genotypes of bacteria on the x-axis. Uh, we have wild type, which has you know, some level of, of fitness. 
when we get um, a resistant mutation that comes with a fitness cost. And so this is fitness in the absence of the antibiotic. Fitness in the presence of the antibiotic, it would be way up here. So this is in the absence of the antibiotic. We see that the fitness has declined, but then there's evolutionary pressure for the bacteria to compensate for that, um, uh, that fitness to decrease. And so that this is when that genome now has the resistant mutation and the compensatory mutation. And so um, the key to diagnosing whether or not this is a compensatory mutation or just a normal adaptive mutation is that if you were to engineer that bacterial genome and you removed that resistant mutation, the fitness here would just be at the level of wild type if, um, if it was just a normal adaptive mutation, you would see a, a fitness increase, right? Because that mutation increased the fitness up to here, and so it should have the same effect and increase fitness up to there. Um, but if that, that effect is only is contingent on occurring with the resistance, you know, if it's compensating specifically for that defect that the resistance mutation causes, then, um, then its benefit is only going to occur um, in the genome uh, that, that has the, the resistant mutation. So here's the, here's the scenario of compensatory mutation. This is what we would expect if it was a normal adaptive mutation, where it increases fitness um, to give you this, and then if you removed the resistant mutation that has the cost, then uh, the same amount of fitness gain should, should occur here. Um, that means that the benefit of the compensatory mutation was just universal. It wasn't contingent on resistance. So use these plots and the previous ones that I've gone over um, on fitness landscapes to really internalize what is epistasis, how does it work, you know, what does it mean that it's a, a mutation effect that depends on other mutations in the genome. And uh, make sure that you, you understand that. Okay, so the question is, when we have cases where resistance is costly, do those cases uh, then result in compensatory mutations? And when we remove the antibiotic from the, the experimental uh, condition, do we see that antibiotic resistance is maintained for you know, a set period of time? And so this is the same study before that was the meta-analysis where we have this massive table. You know, again, we have different bacteria and we have different um, antibiotic resistance genes. Uh, and um, then this is sort of the, the important uh, column to look at. Uh, we see in most cases they maintained uh, the resistance gene, even though selection for resistance was relaxed, uh, there are three cases here. Uh, I, I guess you could say two and a half cases. Um, in this case, some were maintained and some were lost, uh, lost here and lost there. And so, in most of the point is, is that in most of the cases, you actually get the maintenance of the antibiotic resistance for a long period of time after you remove the antibiotics, uh, in part due to these compensatory mutations. So the conclusion is that stopping to use uh, antibiotics, or not stopping entirely, obviously you need them in the clinical setting, 
um, but not using them at home, no, no. buying uh, livestock that uh, have we haven't treated with antibiotics. Um, by doing all of those steps, we'll actually slow the spread of antibiotic resistance. Um, but these genes that are already present, these mutations that are already present, will be maintained in microbial populations and remain to be a problem. So we need a little bit more advanced strategies in order to um, really stop the evolution of antibiotic resistance and then actually um, cause it to reverse. So the next strategy that we're going to talk about, number two, is pretty straightforward, and we've already talked about it, actually. We've, we've talked about the math behind why it works. Um, but it's that we can use drug combinations. Uh, we can use multiple different antibiotics against a single bacterial infection. And the idea there is that while the bacteria can evolve to deal with one antibiotic, it won't be able to evolve to deal with multiple antibiotics. Um, this is an example for HIV. So combinatorial treatments are really effective uh, for HIV. They're also used sometimes for bacteria um, and with antibiotics. Um, but this is just uh, from your section problem set where we had a mutation rate for resistance to these three different drugs, three different mutation rates. And if we were to give all three of the drugs simultaneously, uh, the mutation rate would be extremely, extremely low and unlikely for the virus to evolve resistance. The same is exactly true for antibiotics. Um, if you have multiple antibiotics, it's very difficult to get multiple different mutations uh, to confer resistance. And so this will stop the infection. And you know, if you wipe out the infection, then you're going to stop the spread of antibiotic resistance uh, as well. So there is a caveat, though. It's not that simple. Um, and so number one is that some antibiotic combinations are actually bad for patients. You know, they can have drug interactions that um, really uh, compromise the health of the patient uh, and, so, and can become toxic. And so we can't mix a lot of combinations together. Um, but the other thing is that they can have unintuitive interactions with themselves that interfere with um, their ability to work at killing the bacteria. And so for this next section, I wanna talk about drug-drug interactions uh, and their effects on killing bacteria. And so this is the first type of drug-drug interaction that I'm gonna talk about. This is a synergistic interaction. Um, and this is the ideal scenario. This, it, when you're looking at this kind of graph, this is what you wanna see. So you have, so let's just walk through the graph. We're going to walk through many of many of these. So what we have here is on the x-axis, we have concentration of drug A. And on the y-axis, we have concentration of drug B. So this is the, and um, we're, we're um, indicating the MIC or bacterial growth uh, under these different conditions. So let's just, let's just look at the x-axis for now. So when we have no antibiotics, so we have no drug A, um, the bacteria grow really well. So this dark coloration here, that means that the bacteria are growing normally, you know, they're happy. Um, but as we increase drug A, we see that bacterial growth uh, begins to slow down, begins to slow down, begins to slow down, begins to slow down, and then at one, that's the minimal inhibitory concentration. So that, that, this dark line here is where the bacteria's growth 
completely arrests. It's the concentration where it, where it, it stops growing. Um, and so if you were to give just antibiotic A at higher concentrations than one, we'll say this is micrograms per milliliter like before, um, then uh, you would actually be able to stop the, the bacterial infection and your immune system would wipe it out and you would be cured. Now, if you, let's consider a drug combination where we add in antibiotic B. So the same pattern exists for antibiotic B as antibiotic A, that once we get above this one micrograms per milliliter threshold, um, then it begins to stop the bacterial growth. So let's think about not things along these, not values along these axes, um, but actually values where we mix both of the drugs together. So say we're to mix half the concentration of A and half the concentration of B, we would land ourselves in this, um, this cross here, and we find that, you know, actually the bacteria growth has now been inhibited by half the concentration of each of them. So the total concentration of drug is, is about the same. Um, but what we can see there is that if we move down, and now we're down to about 25% you know, of drug A and 25% of drug B, um, so we have less overall drug than, than we would have had to use if we just used one drug or the other drug, um, then we see that the bacteria are still being inhibited. So bacteria are inhibited all along this line. And so if we're, if we're now just down to a quarter of the concentration of A and a quarter of the concentration of B, we actually see inhibition. And so that's why this is called a synergistic uh, uh, interaction because less drug is inhibiting bacterial growth more than you would expect by just looking at the effect of A and just looking at the effect of B and adding them together you would expect just to have inhibition right at this point or along a line between these two points. But now we see there's depression in this pattern so that actually we can use less drug of A and less drug of B if they're in combination together. So people have looked at these drug, drug interactions and they have found all kinds of different behaviors. And so synergy is what we're looking for. It's, it's this line here. This relates to this graph here. Um, additivity is not bad. Additivity just means that you're not getting extra, um, you're not getting an extra benefit for using the two drugs together. They just, they mix together fine. They don't interfere with each other. They have the exact same effect um, independently of one another. And so that's, that's a fine drug combination to use as well. And so this corresponds to this graph here. Um, but here is when the drug combinations start being uh, bad and that you would not want to use them. Uh, and so for this drug, uh, this combination of drugs here, this is antagonism, where now, um, you know, this is the point here where you would, you would expect, you know, 50% of one drug and 50% of another drug would interfere with growth. But now if you move out here and you have 75% of one and 75% of the other, um, you're actually still in the region. I should use this graph over here. You're still in the region where um, the bacteria are able to grow. Maybe their, their growth is inhibited a slight little bit, um, but they're not, you know, they're not uh, stopped. This is not the point of its uh, inhibitory con concentration. So certainly if you were, if you're putting in 
you know, um, one microgram per milliliter of drug A and one microgram per milliliter of drug B, you would have an inhib inhibitory concentration. But why would you give two drugs at the same time when that you would still see inhibition if you just use one microgram per milliliter of drug A or one microgram per milliliter of drug B? So this is an antagonism, and we do not want this kind of interaction if we're using drug combinations. Then the story gets even crazier in that if you, there are some combinations of drugs that actually interfere with each other so that drug A in this scenario is actually somehow conferring resistance to drug B. So this is, this is mind-blowing. This is completely unexpected uh, to see. Um, but if we go over to this graph over here, I can explain what I just said. And so we have drug A at all these concentrations. And so say we have just drug B, um, and we're not applying any drug A into, into the patient or into the test tube or whatever. Um, then, you know, one microgram per milliliter is going to inhibit the growth. But if you start adding in um, a little bit of drug A, you know, and you add in about, you know, 0.5 micrograms per milliliter of drug A, you're now in a region where that level of drug B should have suppressed the growth of the bacteria, but now the bacteria is actually able to grow. This means that A is somehow conferring resistance to B. Maybe A is directly interfering with B, and so now the bacteria can grow, um, or there's some more complex thing in the cell where A triggers the cell to change its gene regulation in a way that it's no longer sensitive to drug B. So you can play through a bunch of scenarios, but the fact is, is that some drugs don't just have antagonism with each other, but one drug can suppress the effectiveness of other drugs. So you have to be very careful in the types of drugs that you pick if you're doing this combinatorial um, uh, treatment. So I just wanted to, these are summary graphs. So it spells out these drug-drug interactions very um, specifically. And so if under this sort of additive model, this is the model where there's no drug interactions, um, A and B will equal A plus B. So that means that, so say I have 75% um, A and 25% B, um, I expect a certain effect of A alone and a certain effect of B alone. Um, and if I combine them together, I'm going to be on this line. And um, that means that there's no, you know, no curvature. There's no, no kind of interaction happening. Um, however, uh, under the next scenario, uh, where we have synergy, you, you use this line as a baseline. for That's, that's what the additive effect would be. And um, synergy is any deviation of that MIC line below that additive line. So this is one example of synergy, but you know, you could have really, really great synergy down here or just a little subtle synergy, but anything that's, that's off this additive line and uh, more towards, the, um, towards zero uh, is, uh, is, is a case of synergy. Antagonism is anything that's in this direction, um, so the opposite of synergy. And then suppression is actually where um, the antagonism gets so bad 
that it actually is recovering bacterial growth of concentrations above which the drug alone should be able to suppress the growth. So in choosing these drugs, you have to be very careful. You have to choose synergistic combinations. And also, you don't want to choose combinations, obviously, that have some kind of toxicity uh, to the patient. So strategy number three, so if you find yourself in a scenario where you can't just give two drugs at once, uh, strategy number three is fluctuating antibiotics. You can't give them at the same time, but you can possibly pulse in one antibiotic or pulse in another antibiotic and go back and forth and fluctuate between the two antibiotics. Um, this is true for appendicitis. Uh, people often are given uh, Cipro and metronidazole. Uh, I should have memorized that before the lecture, sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, they fluctuate between these two antibiotics and they find that it's, it's much better for the patient than just giving one of these strong antibiotics. Um, these are given intravenously because if you have a, a, an appendix that bursts, um, you're very prone to bacterial infections that can actually threaten your life. Um, so it's very serious, and so they do this fluctuating um, antibiotic uh, regimen. Okay, so the way that these fluctuating antibiotics work um, is that they can actually, they, they sort of give a double dose of antibiotics, but they can actually even slow down uh, the rate of antibiotic resistance evolution. And so this is a very similar graph to what we were just looking at. But now what we're talking about is an evolutionary interaction. So now we're actually talking about the last one was just whether or not, what's the effect of two drugs given simultaneously on uh, bacterial growth. And it wasn't considering antibiotic resistance evolution. Now, this is a scenario where we're fluctuating antibiotics and we are considering the evolution of antibiotic resistance. And so this is a scenario that we call collateral sensitivity. And this is really uh, um, a golden scenario where if we find combinations of drugs that can for collateral sensitivity, then we can use them in these fluctuating regimes and wipe out the bacteria and interfere with its ability to, to evolve resistance. Okay, so let's, let's just sort of walk through um, how these, these drugs work together. And so this is actually a, a, a protocol in which a drug combination that has an antagonism uh, can be used in a smart way so that you avoid um, reducing the effectiveness due to the, due to the antagonism um, and, and actually even mitigate its ability, uh, mitigate the, the evolution of antibiotic resistance. Okay, so let's just walk through the figure and, and hopefully this makes a little bit more sense. So now the way that this figure is drawn is that this shaded region is where the bacteria are able to grow. Uh, the white region are where the bacteria are unable to grow. Um, we have this pattern here. So this is uh, the pattern of antagonism. So we wouldn't want to use these two antibiotics together at the same time. Um, but we, we would want to use these antibiotics if we fluctuated from one to the other antibiotic. So it's still using them in combination, just in a smart way. 
Okay, so why do I say that? I say that because um, we now have extra information on this plot. This plot uh, shows us uh, the, the pattern of growth, the MIC in drug combinations for wild type. So this is the ancestral bacteria before it's resistant to the antibiotic. And then when it gains resistant to, resistance to antibiotic A, so that's what this mutation is doing here. It's, it's pulling out um, the concentration in which the bacteria can grow on antibiotic A. But when it does that, it has a side effect that now it's more sensitive to antibiotic B. And so what you can do is uh, hit it first with A and then hit it with B, and it's going to be really, really sensitive to B. And you can fluctuate back and forth between these things so that um, you're actually going to be uh, selecting against resistance mutations by applying the second antibiotic. So let's, let's think through sort of, there is, there is some data to support that this is true, that some antibiotic resistance mutations make bacteria more sensitive to a second antibiotic making it sensitive to that sensitive antibiotic. And so this one-two punch will both wipe out the bacteria and uh, stop the bacteria from evolving any kind of resistance to these antibiotics. And so there's a lot of people that have done these types of studies. I'm going to just talk about one study here uh, that's really clear-cut. Um, and so the way that the study is going to be set up is much like that uh, Lori and Delbrook study where we're plating bacteria onto auger that has selective agents on it. So in the Lorian Dowbrook, it was um, the phage, but in this study, we are selecting with antibiotics. That's the agent that is killing off the, the bacteria. Okay, so what I have here is this is just the control. This is no non-selective auger. There's no antibiotics in this auger. And so of course the bacteria grow on these Petri dishes. Um, and if you take this bacteria, and you put it into an MIC test for trimethoprim or neomycin or Cipro, um, you see that you know, it's sensitive to all of these antibiotics. Um, and there's, and you know, the, I've just arbitrarily shown that they're, they're the same level of sensitivity to all of these antibiotics. So the next step of the experiment is to now played a large population of bacteria, they've mutated, some of them have mutated, and so there's some colonies that form on this Petri dish. You can pick the colony and you can put it and grow it up into uh, trimethoprim, and we see now, compared to before, it, has, it can um, grow at much higher concentrations of this drug than before. And so now you wanna take that same colony and you wanna put it into these, these other antibiotics. So remember, the, the colony has not seen, or this bacteria has not seen these antibiotics. Uh, it's only evolved resistance to trimethoprim. And so collateral sensitivity is where you would see this decline in um, the, the concentration of the antibiotic uh, that the, the bacteria can grow in. So it's actually making them even more sensitive to these antibiotics. So there's a huge uh, multiple um, multiple step decline in neomycin, a single step decline in Cipro. But the point is, is that when we select for TMP, we see this side effect, this pleiotropy of uh, becoming more sensitive 
to neomycin and more sensitive to Cipro. So the key here is to compare what, what was before they evolved resistance and what's the response after they have resistance and we see that they become more sensitive. So here is the actual figure um, from that experiment. Uh, what, that, what, the, um, um, what the x-axis is, is number of independent colonies that they picked that had a certain behavior. Um, and what the y-axis is, is change in log to MIC. And so a zero would mean that there's no change in the, um, the bacteria's resistance or sensitivity to an antibiotic. Um, above means that it's increased its, its resistance. Uh, below zero means that it's decreased its, its resistance. Um, and so most of the colonies picked off of this plate uh, show that they have increased resistance to TMP. That's great. Um, you know, they, when we select for them to have TMP resistance, they, they, they evolve it. So not great in terms of uh, you know, dealing with the crisis of antibiotics, but great in the sense that the experiment's working. I'm not sure what's happening with this uh, one errant uh, uh, bar here. Maybe this is just some kind of experimental error. Um, and then when we take those same uh, bacteria and we put them in two different conditions, neomycin or cipro, we see that in general, we have a decline in neomycin. In general, we have a decline in um, resistance to cipro. A decline in resistance is obviously sensitivity, increased sensitivity uh, to those two drugs. So in fact, you know, we can have these, um, these examples of drug combinations where when they are when they're applied in sequence, um, you will sensitize the bacteria to the alternative drug, and then when you hit it with that alternative drug, it'll have a hard time um, dealing with it. And so this is this is sort of trapping them um, with this collateral sensitivity. So this is just a summary graph of that, um, but. Now it also shows another circumstance. And so just like we had to be careful about picking the right combination of drug A and drug B uh, when we're applying them together at the same time, we also have to pick the right combination um, that show collateral sensitivity and not cross resistance if we're fluctuating those drugs and trying to avoid the evolution of antibiotic resistance. And so what cross resistance is, uh, it's basically the, the definition is in the name. So when you get resistance to drug A, um, you can have a different kind of response than before where that confers resistance to drug B as well. So you can imagine that there's some antibiotic resistance mutations that are very generic and can um, give you resistance to multiple different antibiotics. Um, and in that case, if you were to fluctuate them, you would... With antibiotic A, you would push to evolve resistance, and with antibiotic B, you would still begin, you would continue to favor that resistant genotype. Go back to A, now you're favoring that resistance genotype even more, and so you're just gonna accelerate the evolution of that resistance. You're not actually having a fluctuating environment. Yes, the drug is fluctuating, but the selective pressure is always pushing in the same direction, driving the same high levels of antibiotic resistance. The key is to be able to fluctuate where you're 
pushing the bacteria one way and then the other way and then one way and then the other way, that'll overall slow down uh, the evolution of resistance. Um, and so you have to be very, um, you have to have information about whether or not drugs uh, confer cross resistance. Um, so one of, one of the types of resistance mutations that often confers cross resistance is something like an efflux pump that's very general in that it just works by uh, expelling toxins from inside of the cell. And so that can work on many different types of antibiotics. Or if antibiotics act on the exact same protein, then often you can have cross resistance because um, a single mutation will interfere with that protein in the same way uh, and, inter and interfere with those two drugs. Um, so those, those are not strict rules, and so you really have to do the experiment to see if collateral sensitivity occurs or cross-resistance occurs before you use a combination of drugs in this fluctuating regime. And I just wanted to show, uh, remind you guys that this is an example of pleiotropy. Pleiotropy is where one mutation has two effects. Um, and so this is a, a, a side effect that results in increased sensitivity, so a bad pleiotropic effect. But this is also a pleiotropic effect in that it's the side effect, but actually it, it gives you cross-resistance. You can, uh, the bacteria now has um, higher fitness with reference to A and with reference to B. So pleiotropy is often thought to be a cost, and that's how I'll refer to it often. Um, however, it can also be just any kind of side effect and even a beneficial side effect like this one for, for the bacteria. Okay, so this is just a summary of strategies two and strategies number three. Um, it just describes uh, what case you're picking uh, two drugs here and for what case you're picking two drugs here. I'm going to keep moving to keep the lecture moving, but make sure to you know study this slide as a and keep it as a as a reference. Okay, so with strategies two and three, um, and seeing that you know you can get these interesting scenarios where you have synergism or you have collateral sensitivity, um, there are lots of labs out there that are going through massive libraries of antibiotics and seeing which ones have good interactions and which ones have bad interactions. Hopefully they can improve uh, treatment strategies within hospitals. Um, but this is often kind of a fishing expedition where they're just, they have massive libraries of compounds and they're seeing how these compounds interact with each other and whether or not they have synergistic effects. Um, and, uh, but I wanna pose the question, you know, can we be smarter than just going on a fish, fishing expedition? Can we actually hunt in a way that we expect to find something like collateral sensitivity uh, between two agents that kill off uh, bacteria? And so that's the segue uh, to talk about strategy number four, which is natural phages as adjuvants to antibiotics. So this strategy was um, implemented by Paul Turner's lab group. Uh, Paul Turner is at Yale. This is a podcast uh, where Paul talks about um, some of their research um, and uh, just gives you sort of an understanding of what his lab does. Um, but uh, Paul came up with this really great idea for how to use phage and antibiotics together to treat Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections. And actually, it, it probably will work for other bacteria as well. 
Okay. You guys might have heard about this thing called phage therapy before. And so before antibiotics were around, phage therapy, people had discovered phage and they thought that, well, these, and they realized that they were viruses of bacteria. And they thought, well, you know, we could use these to kill off bacterial infections. And so people started to use phage for that reason, but bacteria can evolve uh, resistance to phages even faster typically than to antibiotics. And so, and it was hard to culture the phages and they had other side effects. Um, and so uh, people ended up just mostly using antibiotics rather than using phages to cure bacterial infections. And so um, phage therapy for a long time was uh, kind of neglected uh, by the field of medicine to focus on antibiotics. But now that we have this problem of the increase of uh, antibiotic resistance, and sometimes patients will have an infection that just are resistant to all the antibiotics that we can throw at them, uh, people have started to use phage as a backup. Um, and uh, what I'm going to talk about right now is a little bit, it's a one-step advancement on phage therapy where you use phage in combination with antibiotics in a very smart way. Um, and this strategy uh, cured some, has cured many patients actually now, um, and I think is a really, a, a really good way to go about using phage uh, and, and, and developing therapies with them. So the idea that Paul and his lab had is that um, we know that efflux pumps confer resistance um, to lots of antibiotics. We know that pathogens like Pseudomonas aeruginosa do have these efflux pumps. Um, the efflux pump that we're focusing or that they focused on was this OPRM. Um, and so here is the protein structure of it. And here is how it works um, within the, uh, the two membranes of the bacteria, uh, where it has a system where drugs come in um, and there's chemical reactions that facilitate the drug leaving the cell. And where the drug leaves the cell through is this uh, OPRM protein. So we know that this is, this is critical. If you don't have this pore to get rid of the drug, then these, these, um, these genes here, these proteins here, won't be able to actually expel the drug um, from, the, uh, from the bacteria. And what we also know is that these types of uh, proteins on the outer membrane of bacteria uh, tend to be targets of phage. And if the bacteria are resisting the phage, the way that they do that is they tend to get mutations in these proteins to interfere with the formation of the protein so that basically the phage doesn't, can't even sense the cell, it's unable to bind to the cell and to infect it. Um, and so what they thought is, huh, this creates a, a dilemma from, for bacteria. They can either get rid of OPRM with mutations that confer resistance to the phage, or they can, get, they can have OPRM and have resistance to the drug, but they can't do both of them at the exact same time. You have to choose one or the other. And so this is, uh, this is having information up front where you predict that you should get this collateral sensitivity behavior, that if you evolve resistance to the drug, you become sensitive to the phage. If you evolve resistance to the phage, 
then you become uh, sensitive to the drug. And so this was their idea. Um, and what they wanted to do though is find a phage that actually used OPRM uh, and was able to infect Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And so they weren't sure if they were going to be able to discover this a phage that, uh, that had this property, but they went looking anyways. And they had a very smart way to look for this phage or to screen for this phage. So what they did is actually, it's, it's a crazy story. Um, they went down the hallway to a colleague that had some lake water um, and they wanted to, they knew that there's lots of phages in lakes, there's phages everywhere, there's phages in your gut, there's phages in the soil. And they just thought, okay, this is easiest to just look in lake water, we can filter it and just uh, isolate phages and then challenge the phage to be able to grow on Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And so that's what this plate is, is showing you guys here, is that this is a plate and we have all of these plaques. So these plaques are cases where a phage has uh, landed on the plate and this is a lawn of Pseudomonas aeruginosa, the, the yellow coloration. And now we have a clearing, which is the plaque. And so that represents a single genotype of phage um, that was able to infect the bacteria. There's many more phages that were put onto this plate where there are spots are just um, positions on the plate where a phage that landed that was able to actually mount an infection and create this plaque. And so they say, okay, all of these different spots, these are phages that uh, are able to kill Pseudomonas aeruginosa, but we want one that is not just able to infect aeruginosa, but is able to infect it through um, that OPRM gene, that, that outer membrane protein that's used in the efflux pump. And so then what they would do is they would take these and they would transfer, they would take a small portion of the, the phage from here and they transfer it to a plate that had Pseudomonas aeruginosa, but it had this, the gene deleted for this protein. So we know that there's no way that that protein is on the outer membrane. And so if the phage can infect on this plate, but can't create a plaque on this plate, that means that phage, yes, we know is able to infect aeruginosa, but is, is unable to infect this strain because it's, it's lost the, what we call a receptor. It's lost this outer membrane protein that the phage uses to infect the cell. And so that's, the, that's a phage that we want to use where it's going to pressure the bacteria um, to lose OPRM. Um, but if it loses OPRM, then the antibiotic is going to get the bacteria. So if we use a combination therapy of the phage and the antibiotic, then um, we know that it, the, the bacteria are going to, um, are, are going to die because they have to do one thing or the other. Both things at the same time are going to kill them and uh, we'll have that collateral sensitivity and that, uh, that really nice uh, therapy. And so um, they, you know, most of the phages they looked at probably were able to create plaques here, but there was luckily this one phage, phage OMK01, um, that was able to uh, produce a plaque on, on this plate, but not this plate. So here is just one of the figures from their papers demonstrating that the combination of both the antibiotic and the phage uh, put the bacteria in a, in a terrible situation that causes it to not be able to grow and to be wiped out. So we have time 
on the x-axis and we have density of bacterial cells uh, on the y-axis. So higher density means that the bacteria are able to grow. Um, and so this trajectory here is showing you what the bacteria do when there's just antibiotic present. Uh, so I, I like this figure, but it's sometimes hard to uh, keep track of what's going on. So this box here uh, corresponds to you know, this color. So you have to match the color to the, to the lines. And uh, what it's showing you is that if you take the Pseudomonas originosa and you culture it in the lab and you look at the bacterial density through time, um, you see that even in the presence of antibiotics, it, it has some level of resistance uh, because it has the efflux pump. That's what this is showing here is that this, this cell has the full efflux pump, including um, the outer membrane protein, the pore that expels the, the antibiotic. Um, and so uh, it's resistant and it grows just fine. And then if you add in um, the phage to the same bacteria that has the full efflux pump, um, now you see that the bacteria begins to grow and it's now facing this sort of evolutionary dilemma as the phage is able to infect it and the antibiotic is acting on it and it just drops down um, to a very low level, probably the level of detection really in the, in the machine. Um, and so that's what you want to see. It's much, much lower density than um, with just the antibiotic alone. Um, and then these, these bottom two are just two different controls. Um, one is both are the cases where you don't have that outer membrane protein and so the pump doesn't work properly. So the strain of bacteria being used is the one that is sensitive to the antibiotic. Um, and so the antibiotic is suppressing its, its growth. It's resistant to the phage and, and in this case, there's no phage at all. Um, and you just see that the, the red line um, and the yellow line um, are the same. They're, they're, they're both getting killed off by the, by the antibiotic because they don't have that functional um, outer membrane uh, protein. So the green in the long term looks just like these negative controls. So that's exactly what we want to see. Um, and it suggests that the action of the combination therapy here is that the bacteria are trying to avoid the phage, and so they're evolving resistance uh, by getting rid of this outer membrane protein, and so then they're no longer able to get rid of the antibiotic, and so they're behaving like this square down here, um, which is what we see in the, the experiment. This certainly uh, does work. Um, this is just walking you through those steps that I've already gone over. So this is just for your notes. Um, and they successfully administered it to this uh, Yale doctor who had a um, Pseudomonas originosa infection that was multidrug resistant and the doctor's health was failing uh, and they couldn't get rid of the bacterial infection. They administered this phage and the antibiotic um, and this guy ended up recovering. Uh, there's an article about this um, in STAT um, that we talked about earlier. Definitely check it out. It's a pretty interesting case. So since this, there has been other trials where other um, patients have been successfully treated with this combination therapy. I should note that also at UCSD, we've had um, patients where we've used other phages to cure their infections and have been successful as well. Uh, so Yale is a hub for this kind of phage therapy, uh, but certainly UCSD is as well. And actually, we have the first uh, phage therapy institute in North America. Um, so this is, I think this is a, 
uh, a growing field um, in case you're interested in this stuff. So this is just a slide that summarizes a little bit of the history of phage therapy. Uh, I've already basically gone over this. Uh, phage were discovered independently two separate times, once in 1915 and once in 1917. They were used in World War I on patients to cure them of infections. They were very helpful in World War I. Um, and UCSD has the first North American uh, Institute for Phage Therapy. It's called IPAT, if you want to look that up. Okay, now uh, Paul Turner's approach relied on being lucky and finding a phage in the environment that would have this synergistic interaction with, um, uh, with antibiotics. So Tim Liu, uh, a, a while ago um, now, actually published a paper where he engineered bacterial phages so that they had synergistic killing effects on bacteria. And they actually even um, cause bacteria to have a slower rate of evolving resistance. And so this is kind of a, maybe even a little bit smarter in that we don't have to depend on finding that lucky phage, but we can engineer in characteristics into that phage, genes, new, adding new genes into the phage in order so that they alter the bacterial cell in a way that then makes the bacterial cell sensitive to antibiotics. Um, and so you give them the sort of one-two punch to uh, wipe them out. This is what we'll call a platform. It's a synthetic phage. So that just means uh, we've engineered it. We've engineered its DNA. And it's a platform in which we can deliver lots of different um, genes and have different synergistic effects. Um, and so we can develop it in lots of unique ways um, to interact with different antibiotics or different um, bacteria and so forth. So I'll just talk about this one case where they added this gene called LexA3 uh, to the phage that altered the, the gene expression in the bacterial cell in a way that had a synergistic effect with antibiotics to kill off the cells at a, at a higher rate. And so the way that this works, and this is, this is called bacteriophage uh, M13, um, and they can take this bacteriophage and they can add in um, other genes to the bacteriophage that they know will alter some characteristic of the bacteria. And so when this phage infects a cell, um, what it does is it doesn't kill off the cell, it just mounts an infection where more of the phage can grow and propagate from the cell, but it doesn't actually lyse the cell and kill it. This is an infection much more like, you know, we tend to have where we'll have a, the common cold or, the, or flu, and, and we typically survive that infection. It's, it's, um, but uh, this, is, this is also what you'd call a chronic infection, that it's very hard for the bacteria to get rid of this phage once it, once it has it. Okay, so, but the reason why this phage was chosen is because it puts DNA into the cell and you can program that DNA to express these, these new genes. And so um, the, it's, it's expressing this LexA gene, which alters gene regulation. So let's, let's, rather than starting from here, so we have this new gene in, let's start from this point of the diagram. And so what they're doing is they're, they're assaulting 
the cell with these bacterial, bacteriophages um, and also an antibiotic. The antibiotic uh, causes DNA damage. When cells experience DNA damage, they, they're not helpless to just be, just to sort of lay there and get attacked by this antibiotic. They can actually um, upregulate uh, a system that turns on um, DNA repair mechanisms. So this system is called the SOS system. Um, and it triggers the DNA repair system, and then that DNA repair system fixes the effect of the antibiotic. So what this graph is showing you here is that in red, this is just the effect of the antibiotic alone, um, where you, have, you would have cell death, um, some cell death. Uh, but when you have this LEX-A added to it, the effect of LEX-A is now uh, described in uh, blue. What it does is it actually uh, suppresses the SOS system, so stops it. And so then what happens is it stops the DNA repair. Uh, and so now any death that's caused by uh, the antibiotic because of how it's damaged the DNA is now enhanced. Um, and so there's a lot more killing uh, and the, the bacteria has a hard time to overwhelming uh, or, or um, the, the bacterial, the whole bacterial population gets overwhelmed uh, by this combination therapy. So here are the, the data from this, this one trial. So we have a mean killing effect. And so a zero means uh, there's a zero flat across. So the x-axis is time. Uh, a zero across here would just mean that there is no growth of the bacteria and there's no killing of the bacteria. Uh, so under these experimental conditions, there's just very uh, subtle growth if you don't have um, the phage or you don't have uh, this antibiotic. And so if you add in just the antibiotic, you see that, that the bacteria is certainly sensitive to the antibiotic, but it doesn't, get, it doesn't cause the population to completely crash out. Um, and that's, that's likely because there's, there's some level of resistance that, that occurs um, uh, in the population. And then if you add in um, the, fit, the phage without the LEX-A gene added to it, and um, you also add in the antibiotic, you can see, okay, well, yeah, combination therapy with antibiotics and phage also work because the phage, um, it's not good for the bacteria to be infected by this phage. And so we see that there's enhanced killing if we have both the phage and the antibiotic. Okay, so that's good. But remember, we've engineered, we can engineer the phage in a way to have a synergistic interaction to kill off the bacteria even more. And so, that's what happens when we add in the antibiotic and the engineered phage. Uh, we see multiple folds of decrease of the bacterial population, really just wiping out the bacterial population from this test tube. And so it's unable to evolve resistance and it's overwhelmed by this synergistic interaction. So like I said, this is just a platform. You can add in different genes. You don't have to just uh, rely on LEX-A. LEX-A just worked very well um, by altering the gene regulation of the, the bacteria. But I think that's kind of, for me, that's a little bit confusing. You know, like how exactly are we changing the gene regulation? And um, I guess it makes sense in light of the SOS system. But there's also other more direct ways to um, even resensitize bacteria 
to antibiotics so that then you can hit them with uh, the antibiotic. You can, you can resensitize them to um, therapies that were or originally they were resistant to and, and were, uh, were not effective. Um, and so one way to do that, and one way that you can imagine, one gene that you can imagine adding to this M13 phage um, is a gene sort of uh, for the poor that um, uh, antibiotics enter the outer membrane of the cell. So this is a diagram from an earlier lecture where we talked about different ways of evolving antibiotic resistance. Um, and one of the ways is that you could get rid of this pore and so that you stop the antibiotics from diffusing out from the environment into the cell. And so then they, they, they are not, no longer affected by the antibiotics. Um, and so if you have bacteria that evolve resistance by getting rid of the, the doorway of the antibiotics into the cell, um, you could put that gene for the protein for the doorway into this phage so that then the, the outer membrane of the uh, bacteria is now receptive to that antibiotic and those antibiotics come into the cell. So that's, that's sort of one, one alternative strategy, one new gene you could add to this platform. Um, and there's lots of different ways that you could add in genes. You could add in genes that destroy biofilms. So a lot of times a problem with treating infections, uh, especially like in the lungs, uh, if you have a bacterial infection, is that they tend to make these sticky biofilms that clog up your lungs. Um, and then those biofilms actually provide some protectant to antibiotics because it's hard for the antibiotics to diffuse through the biofilms. And so you could actually put in genes in the M13 phage that uh, interfere with creation of biofilms. Um, you could put in other genes that increase the permeability of the outer membrane to antibiotics. Um, and you could um, put in other genes that affect gene regulation, maybe in ways that uh, stop efflux pumps from being expressed. Um, and you can just sort of imagine all kinds of different ways. So this is a generic platform that we can use uh, to create these synergistic interactions with antibiotics. So the sixth strategy uh, I am really impressed by, um, and it comes from labs at UCSD um, in this Tata Institute for Active Genetics. This is a new building um, on campus that the, the institute is housed in. Um, this is just an article uh, about the opening of this institute. This is Pradeep, our, our chancellor, and this is a professor, Ethan Beer, who created this thing called a gene drive. Uh, he didn't come up with the idea of a gene drive, but he and his lab members uh, created the first gene drive. Um, and uh, they actually created this genetic element. I'm going to describe how it works in a second um, in fruit flies. But recently, he's teamed up with Victor Mizet in his lab, um, and they have created a gene drive in bacteria. And the way that the drive works is to actually reverse antibiotic resistance. It is this genetic element that can um, track down antibiotic resistance genes and kill them off. Um, so it's really interesting. It's really powerful. It's just at the first stages of being um, constructed. Uh, it's very far away from ever being used, um, but it really, these kinds of smart strategies give me hope for uh, stopping the spread of antibiotic resistance genes and actually reversing the spread, getting rid of the antibiotic resistance genes. Okay, 
So this is, this is a little bit molecular focus, a little bit complicated. Um, but what, what a gene drive does is basically it cuts DNA that you don't want, and then it pastes in DNA that you do want. And when it pastes in DNA that, that you do want, that, um, that DNA has the drive encoded into it. So then that um, copy of the drive can then cut and paste itself into other, other uh, bits of DNA. So let's, okay, let's, let's sort of step back a second and think about what I'm, what I'm talking about here. Um, and so there are a couple different components in what is called a gene drive. And this is, I'm particularly talking about the gene drive that is in, that has been constructed for bacteria. It's different for flies, of course, and other organisms, um, but this is the one for bacteria. And so what we have here is this Cas9 protein. And so if you know anything about uh, biotechnology, you know that this Cas9 protein is completely changing the way that we're able to edit genomes and do all kinds of sophisticated things. Um, Cas9 is, they're trying to develop strategies to use Cas9 in ways that we can more efficiently and much cheaper um, uh, diagnose somebody with having COVID-19. And so this is a sort of general all-purpose enzyme um, that is, uh, people are using in lots of different ways. But at the essence of Cas9 is what it is, is it's an enzyme that cuts double-stranded DNA. So there's lots of enzymes that cut double-stranded DNA. What's unique about Cas is that you can program the enzyme to cut double-stranded DNA in a particular location. And so you use this guide RNA here. This is a little piece of RNA that says, has a sequence here. So this is, you know, A, G, U, A, C, C, so forth. Um, and uh, that tells the enzyme it matches up using uh, Watson-Crick pairing um, with a sequence in the DNA of say a bacteria cell and it matches up and it cuts it in a very particular location. And so this guide RNA programs the enzyme to cut the DNA in a particular location. That location could be an antibiotic resistant gene. And that's been uh, shown to be successful that you can program this, cut that gene, and then you get rid of um, resistance in the population. But you can, you can use just Cas9 but you can also couple it with this second system called Lambda Red, which then causes what we call homologous recombination. You can think of this as just pasting in. So you have a sequence of DNA that you want to paste in to this cut. So you want to remove the antibiotic resistance gene and then paste in the, the drive uh, DNA. And then that cell is no longer going to be resistant, but it also has the genetic material for a drive so that then if a new antibiotic resistance gene comes into the bacteria from horizontal transfer or some other mechanism, then that drive will cut that new invading gene. And so this is an active system that is always surveilling the bacterial population from evolving resistance to uh, the antibiotic that you program it to assault. 
let's keep going so you can understand a little bit more about how this works. And it is, it is complicated. There's lots of information online if you really want to understand how drives work. Um, they're this really cool technology. Um, and I, I see a big future with it. And especially if you're looking for research at UCSD, there's lots of people that work on gene drives. So um, this is a drive here, H1 to H2. All of this, this is DNA, um, and it's encoding different genes and different properties um, and allowing this drive to work. This is in this larger plasmid DNA. So it's just, this is just, um, you know, it's vector um, to help it replicate and to move it from one, one cell to another cell. And so you have this Cas9 and this gRNA. So this is saying that it's encoding for that, that enzyme that is programmed with this piece of RNA to target a particular um, spot in the genome. In the case that we're gonna talk about today, it's targeting an antibiotic resistance gene, cutting it in half so that that resistance gene no longer works. Um, then the, the next step is homology-directed repair uh, or recombination. So this lambda red is turned on. Um, and what this lambda red does is it stitches DNA together so that if you have a sequence of DNA that's identical to another sequence of DNA, even though they're on separate strands of DNA, what it does is it stitches them together. Um, and so we have in our gene drive, we have what are called homology arms, H1 and H2. These are pieces of DNA that we've put in here that we know are identical to the antibiotic resistance gene. And so what we know is gonna happen is that when this cut occurs and we upregulate lambda red, then this whole piece of DNA is going to be converted into this segment of DNA here. Um, and what you're gonna get is now you have two copies of that drive, one copy of the drive in the plasmid and one copy of the drive in the genome or another plasmid that had the antibiotic resistance gene, but now we've just cut that antibiotic resistance gene in half, replicated this gene drive, and now that gene drive can go on and spread to another antibiotic resistance gene. If you have multiple copies of that antibiotic resistance gene, that's very common. Often in bacteria, um, you'll have multiple different plasmid pieces of DNA. So these are just really small bits of DNA that, that occupy the cytoplasm of bacteria. And um, you'll have maybe 50 copies of them. And so you need a genetic element that can spread from to one, not just one copy, but can replicate itself and spread to multiple copies. And so the gene drive actually works really well in this context. So here is just a summary slide uh, giving you more specific definitions of all of these elements um, just in text so you can uh, study. And so the idea with the drive is that um, they've developed it so that they show that it actually works. And if you start out with a population of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, you can sensitize the bacteria to antibiotics and then hit them with the antibiotics and then um, they, they just die off. Um, and in the future, what we really need to do is to be able to put the drive, so this is the drive on a plasmid, um, put it into some kind of vector or some kind of genetic element that will uh, allow it to transfer from one bacteria to another bacteria. And so 
if it has that property that can actually transfer from one bacteria to another bacteria, then it can spread through bacterial populations and wipe out um, the, the antibiotic resistance gene in that full population. And so the way that you can do this, there's multiple different strategies, but we talked about one mechanism for horizontal gene transfer is conjugation. And so if you have this drive that's coupled with conjugation, you can actually have this bacteria that has the drive in its genome, it's also in this plasmid, then the plasmid can spread to another genome that has the antibiotic resistance gene, and then that genome can be um, cured of that antibiotic resistance gene, sensitizing this bacteria um, to, uh, to the antibiotics. So this drive is, is more complicated, but it can actually, it's predicted to be able to spread through bacterial populations and cure them of these antibiotic resistance genes. Okay, so we have six different strategies we can use to combat the rise of antibiotic resistance. The first is the easiest to understand, just reduce your use of antibiotics and so the problem won't accelerate as fast. That's flattening the curve, but for antibiotic resistance. Uh, we have drug combinations at the same time or fluctuating. Uh, we have phage collateral sensitivity. So it's uh, number four is a play on number three, except you're not using two different antibiotics on the bacteria. You're using antibiotics and phage on the bacteria, and you're picking the phage in a way that's smart so you get collateral sensitivity. Uh, the, last, the fifth one is uh, using engineered phage that have these synergistic interactions with antibiotics. They're adjuvants to antibiotics. Uh, and the last one are these gene drives where we can actually put this genetic element into microbial populations and hopefully wipe out antibiotic genes from the whole population, uh, resensitizing them to our therapies, and hopefully you know, reversing the rise of antibiotic resistance and preserving the effectiveness of our therapies. So here's just another summary um, to talk about, you know, the way that I try to organize this lecture is that we start out with the sort of simplest to the most complex, the sort of oldest idea to the newest idea. And I wanted to say sort of where are these in the development in fighting antibiotic resistance? Well, approaches one through three have been approved to use in humans. Uh, four has been approved only for compassionate care. Uh, five is still under development. It's contentious to, to use synthetic organisms to treat humans, and so that ha we have to get over that hurdle and make sure that there's no problems there. And number six is just at the very first stages of development. Um, but number six, I, I think, has a lot of, a lot of promise. Okay. Um, thank you guys very much, and I'll see you guys on Thursday. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.